Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Friday, August 5th, we're studying Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 24, through chapter 3, verse 11. Moses' first sermon in Deuteronomy continues. He reminds the people how the Lord has already won victories for them on the east side of the Jordan River. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Dan Speckard. Pastor Speckard serves at St. Peter Lutheran Church and School in North Judson, Indiana. Pastor Speckard, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you, Pastor Apple. Glad to be here. Let's talk a little context as we get started. We've been reading Moses' first sermon here in the book of Deuteronomy for a little while now. What should we know as we look at the text before us today? Yeah, so if you've been in the first sermon uh, in Deuteronomy, you know what Moses is doing. He's sort of setting the stage for what will be the bulk of the book, which is his uh, second giving of the law, uh, where he reminds the Israelites of covenant and and uh, the, the ways and means by which God has established them as his people, and what that would look like as they entered into the promised land uh, without Moses. And that's something uh, that, of course, you'll unpack as the book goes on. Uh, what Moses is doing here then in this first sermon, in the first uh, four chapters or so, uh, is reminding this generation of Israelites, sort of the second generation uh, after the Exodus, uh, how it is that they came to be here and uh, what God had done for them thus far. Uh, and in this particular passage, we're dealing with some pretty recent events uh, as the Israelites uh, came out of the wilderness after the first generation uh, had begun to pass away. Uh, they came out of the wilderness and were preparing to enter into the promised land uh, from the east across the Jordan River. But in order to do that, they had to position themselves uh, there in the plains of Moab, and uh, they encountered some uh, some challenges uh, along the way. Uh, two of which we uh, we will be discussing today with the Amorite kings, uh, Sihon and, and Og. So, okay, so we've we've come a little ways in his sermon. And I just, just to recap, because I, I find this helpful for my own sake, as as Moses started, he, he rewound the clock 40 years and described how they set out from Sinai. The Lord was faithful to them in providing leaders over the people, others to help Moses. The Lord was faithful in telling them, now is the time to go into the promised land. Then the people's unfaithfulness came through very strongly when they rejected that command of the Lord. They refused to go in, and the Lord said, "This for this reason, you're not going to go in. This generation is going to die here in the wilderness, and it's going to be the little children they're going to be the ones who get to go into the promised land, along with Caleb and Joshua. Those will be the two adult exceptions. And then Moses went from that that moment of great unfaithfulness. Now it seems he's turning back toward the faithfulness of the Lord. And so he recounted the, the wilderness wanderings. And what we looked at in yesterday's show was how the Lord led his people in and around the territory of Edom and Moab and Ammon. And again, I think emphasizing the faithfulness of the Lord. 
just again, trying to hold the the sermon together, it seems that the faithfulness of the Lord is really the the going to be a primary emphasis in the section we've got today as well. Oh, a- absolutely. And that's really the dichotomy that you see in, in the entire Old Testament. Uh, as we all know, you have the uh, remarkable, unfailing faithfulness of God uh, that in spite of everything, he stands by his people, uh, protects them and preserves them according to his good and gracious will, uh, and that is always contrasted with the uh, repeated infidelity of his people, uh, their lack of trust, uh, their chasing after other gods or other sources of protection, uh, and certainly the Israelites after the Exodus lived that, and, and as you um, just summarized, I mean, the, the whole 40-year period uh, was the Lord giving them an opportunity to learn to trust him. We I think we often think of this section of Israelite history as punishment, uh, but as I'm sure you've discussed with other guests, um, it's it's not so much punishment as it is uh, maturation, right? It's the sort of um, opportunity the Lord provides his people to grow in their trust of him. And now you have this point of transition that we're studying today uh, where this, as you call them, the little children, the next generation of Israelites are going to be embarking upon the next stage of their history as they enter into the promised land and settle it. Uh, and they will be doing so with the words of Moses echoing in their ears, his call for them to trust in God, who is always providing, always protecting. And that really is, as you noted, sort of the uh, the thread in these sermons, uh, that wherever they've been and wherever they're going, certainly where they are in the present, uh, the Lord is faithful uh, and he will not uh, depart from his people. Well, I appreciate the way that you you described that time in the wilderness, not as not as a time of punishment, but a punishment, but as of maturation and learning to trust in the Lord. Because then that, I mean, that really, I think, helps us to understand from another angle, what Moses is up to in the book of Deuteronomy, as he has this you know, last opportunity to address this new generation. He knows he's about to die. And and here's the moment where, as the, the prophet of the Lord, the faithful leader, the preacher for the people, he's going to turn to them and, and say, okay, here's what you've been through. Now, and maybe this, but did you learn the lesson? Here's Here was what God wanted you to receive. Here's what he wants you to know, having gone through these 40 years. Here's here's what you need to know. He is the faithful God who will lead you. And that really, I mean, as you said, you know, the book's going to move into after this historical preface or this first historical sermon into here's what the Lord wants you to do when you're in the promised land. Here's his his law. Well, why should we keep it? This this sermon is really helping to set the stage. God is a faithful God. He loves you. He's led you. He's bringing you to the promised land. Why would you want to follow any other God? It, it really does set the stage. It gives gospel motivation for what's to come. Absolutely. And in this passage in particular, I think it's really important that we we understand that these are words for a generation that has never really had a chance to exercise their trust in God. Um, it was their fathers who doubted uh, 40 years previously, and they have been wandering in the wilderness ever since, sort of waiting for their opportunity to live as God's people, uh, doing something other than wandering. And now finally the time has come. This is their chance. They are going to be uh, people of God who enter into the land that God had promised to their ancestors. And obviously we know that the uh, the stories that are probably most important and the ones that we remember are going to be ahead of us after Deuteronomy as they're settling the promised land. Uh, those are maybe more familiar to us But what we have here at the start of Deuteronomy, and it was obviously recounted originally there in the book of Numbers, is this generation 
sort of flexing their muscle. And I don't mean their own military might, but uh, sort of, you know, learning or, or for the first time living as the generation whom God is fighting for. And so when Moses is preaching these words, there's a little bit of a, um, obviously there's a melancholy from Moses who won't get to enter the land, who's saying in, in very real, in a very real way, a farewell to his people. Uh, but there's also an anticipation uh, that is these, you know, this generation, they have an opportunity here to deal with the Amorites and there are greater foes to come. Uh, this is kind of an exciting time for them. And I think that uh, that's something we need to keep in mind as we read about uh, these uh, these military uh, battles. All right. So as as you said, we're in much more recent memory now. The, the time of wilderness wandering is over and they're on the cusp of the promised land. But before they go into the promised land, the Lord's going to give them some victories on the, the other side. The, sometimes it's called the Transjordan, the east side of the Jordan River. That's the general area where we are. So we're picking up in Deuteronomy 2, verse 24 this morning. Rise up, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of the Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to take possession, and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you, and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemoth to Sihon the king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, Let me pass through your land. I will go only by the road. I will turn aside neither to the right nor to the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat, and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot, as the sons of Esau who live in Seir, and the Moabites who live in Ar did for me, until I go over the Jordan into the land that the Lord our God is giving to us. But Sihon the king of Heshbon would not let us pass by him, for the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand, as he is this day. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to take possession, that you may occupy his land. Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Jahaz. And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. And we captured all his cities at that time, and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. Only the livestock we took as spoil for ourselves with the plunder of the cities that we captured. From Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the city that is in the valley, as far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. The Lord our God gave all into our hands. Only to the land of the sons of Ammon you did not draw near, that is, to all the banks of the river Jabbok and the cities of the hill country, whatever the Lord our God had forbidden to us. Then we turned and went up the way to Bashan. And Og the king of Bashan came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edri. But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon the king of Ammon, of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So the Lord our God gave into our hand Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people, and we struck him down until he had no survivor left. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city that we did not take from them, sixty cities, the whole region of Argob, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. All these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides very many unwalled villages. And we devoted them to destruction 
as we did to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children. But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as our plunder. So we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians call Hermon Sirion, while the Amorites call it Sinir. All the cities of the Tableland, and all Gilead, and all Bashan, as far as Salakah and Edrai, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. For only Og the king of Bashan was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length, and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. That's our text for today. That's Deuteronomy 2, verse 24 through 3, verse 11. I know we're going to come to it at the end, Pastor Specker, but I do love that note about Og's bed there at the end. It just is a real, <laughs> quite the touch of, of Moses there to, to tell us about Og's bed. Yeah, well, it gives you a sense of uh, the magnitude of the victory if you consider that's right. how large Og was. That's right. It's, uh, that's right. It's a big deal. That's right. So, so we'll we'll take it in order though. We we start. We've got basically two parts here. One, the the defeat of, of a king named Sihon, and the next, a, a de, the defeat of the king named Og. So, uh, take us into the the first part when when Moses initially gives the command to to go towards Sihon. What do we need to to see? Well, it's an exciting time, as we kind of established uh, before, for this new generation. Uh, they have an opportunity to begin to see what the Lord will do. You know, rise up, set out on your journey. And uh, this is, um, uh, of course, Moses is recounting something that had happened fairly recently, but they would have, in their memory, this would have been a great triumph. Uh, for this next generation of the Israelites, um, they were contending with uh, the Amorites. And maybe I should just right now, uh, for your audience, I think it's important to to be honest. Um, as a as a pastor, uh, we are called to to know a great deal about the Word of God. But I am certainly not a specialist in pre Canaanite uh, Israelite history uh, when it comes to to you know understanding the uh, you know the the complexities of these peoples and these various uh, tribes of peoples who uh, contested with the Israelites as they made their way uh, to the Promised Land and into the Promised Land. If I'm being totally honest, I think like a lot of Christians, I get uh, very, very uh, overwhelmed or almost intimidated when we start to, like in Deuteronomy chapter 2, we encounter the Edomites, the Moabites, uh, the Ammonites, the Amorites. Um, It starts to feel very, very confusing. Um, And I think that, you know, obviously we're going to unpack a little bit of the um, the significance of these texts, and we already have begun to do so. But right at the outset, I just wanted to let your listeners know, um, if you're feeling like this is a lot to take in, and maybe when you get to this section of your Bible, uh, you start to skim quickly or just jump over it, because how can we possibly understand? Uh, there are some really solid resources uh, for helping people to uh, at least get a sense uh, or a picture uh, of the scene. There are um, uh, you know, Pastor Apple, you and I were talking about the new uh, blue commentary that CPH has put out. Uh, I guess there are some excellent maps in that. Your study Bible, if you have the Lutheran study Bible, has some really great maps. Um, there, there are all sorts of, of study helps, uh, both online and in print, that can really allow us to, um, even as non-specialist, uh, maybe not super uh, well-educated with respect to Old Testament history, Christians uh, can help us to find meaning in these words. So before we dive or went any further, I just wanted to to make sure that that your listeners know 
um, this isn't beyond the possibility of grasping. That's right. Um, and, and, and I think that's so important. I have in front of me all of my notes. got to put these together yesterday. I started in a place of total bewilderment trying to remember the, the, you know, the distinction between these peoples. And, you know, I've come to a place of, of relative understanding. And um, it, it's, a, it's kind of a blessed thing uh, to, to be confronted with that opportunity. So I wanted to say that at the, the outset, if that, if that makes sense, Pastor. Apple. No, it, it, it does. And I, I appreciate you saying that because I, I do think that this is one of the spots in the Old Testament and not just Deuteronomy 2 and 3, but this sort of literature within, within the Old Testament. When you get to the places that are difficult to pronounce, you're not sure where they are or who the people are that we're talking about, where it can be very easy just to, to skip over it. And not that not that you'll come to a perfect understanding, and, and we, we dealt with this a little bit in yesterday's text about you know, who are the, the Kaftarim or the, the Rephaim. We get some of those names again today. We may not be able to, to pin it down, but there are resources that do give us at least the, the basic picture. And even in the text of, of Scripture, you can get the basic picture of still what is what is going on. And to, to familiarize ourselves with this, I, I do think it is a, a great blessing to, you know, buckle down and, and, and go for it, to, to make that effort to, to say, okay, well, well, who is Sihon? Where is Heshbon? Whereabouts are we? What's going on? I do think there is a great benefit to us as Christians. And as you yeah. said, if, if you've got, if you get, get a map out in, of, the, of the general area, if you've got one in a study Bible, it's going to be very helpful more so than a modern one, because you're going to have the names on it that we're talking about, and and get a picture of, of where we're going, even even if you don't get the exact spots or there's some question as to who it is and where they are, we can get that general picture. And and the reason that this is important, I think, is that it, it is a reminder that what we're talking about here actually happened to real people in history. This isn't a fairy tale, but this is something that God actually did to save his people in in time and history. Yeah, that's. I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that um, uh, we have a tendency, particularly with with texts like these that have the the confusing elements we've already described. We have a tendency to begin thinking of this like we might think of, uh, you know, Narnia from C.S. Lewis or Middle Earth from Tolkien. Um, I think I've maybe shared on this program before the story. I have an acquaintance who, uh, you know, went to college and uh, she was unpacking her dorm and she had an olive wood. A sculpture from Bethlehem, and her roommate asked about it. And when uh, my acquaintance said, "Well, this, you know, I got this in Bethlehem," her roommate laughed because she didn't think Bethlehem was a real place. She thought mm. it was make believe, um, wow. because that is how she had encountered Christians talking about that place. And obviously, she wasn't a Christian herself. Um, and I, I think that that's sort of a, a cautionary tale for us not to neglect the historical reality of salvation history. But this isn't a make-believe world. This is uh, ancient history, to be fair, but human history. And if we take the time to study the maps and remember the peoples, uh, it, it really does. The exercise uh, will strengthen our—I um, I don't think it's too much to say that it strengthens our faith in reality of God's love. Because, you know, getting back to the question of why we study these types of texts, so much of God's character is revealed in the way that he handles his people uh, as they face challenges and difficulties, and even as they, they bring those challenges upon themselves at times. And for us to understand that that revelation of his character 
is not just literary fantasy, but historical reality. Mm. I mean, that is massively important because we aren't fantasy, we're real. And my guilt and my shame and my desire for God is real. Uh, I want to know that the real God is really active. And accounts like these understood properly uh, give us a great sense of that of that reality. And sometimes, I mean, you can see the the very clear carryover from what is in the text of Scripture to the say the modern map. Just as an as an example, and I I apologize in advance for my pronunciation, but it, in yesterday's text and in today's text, both we've talked about the people of Ammon, the the sons of Lot. That's that's how they are. Mm-hmm. If you look on a map of the world today you'll find that the capital of the modern-day country, Jordan, is, and I think, is it pronounced Amman? I'm, I'm not positive. But it's, it's, yeah, almost, it's almost the exact same spelling. And if you find the city of Amman on a modern-day map, you'll be pretty close to where the people of Ammon in the scriptures lived. And that, I always love it when there's a, a close connection like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's worth adding. And I'm, again, I'm not an expert in these things, but, uh, you know, like, like most of us, I've read the experts. Uh, and the... Uh, sort of not only modern geopolitical scene, but also the last 50 to 100 years of archaeological discovery have really bolstered uh, the extent to which we can trust in scriptural accounts as real history. You know, before the you know modern archaeology, we were sort of taking the word of God um, at its word and trusting that these are real places and, and real events and real people. Uh, as archaeology, archaeology has progressed in these uh, these cities are being discovered and these names are being found on on coins and various uh, uh, structures. It's really a a, um, a blessed thing to behold what really we should have known all along, that God's word right. is real, is true. And uh, this is just uh, another example of that that we're studying today. So with that preface in place then, where the first king that's mentioned is Sihon, king of Heshbon. He's the Amorite can you, and I know we can't draw a map, but can you kind of at least give us an idea of, of where we are in the world with, with this part of the text? Yeah, so what we're doing is we're, we're coming with, the, or, or Moses is recounting how the Israelites came up uh, around the uh, the Dead Sea uh, from the southwest, right? So they had been in the wilderness, sometimes called the wilderness of Zin, uh, you know, which, which, and there's actually, I guess, some debate about these things, but but I think most would agree that they're in the southwest of what we would now call the promised land um, uh, on sort of the Sinai Peninsula. And they're coming around that so that they can approach the promised land from the east. And what would make the most sense would be for them to take what is called uh, the, the King's Highway, which was a sort of an established path or caravan trail uh, that people would use to, to travel along the east side of the Jordan as they headed from north to south or south to north. Um, but the kingdoms of uh, Edom and and uh, Ammon were, were sort of, um, God hadn't permitted them to travel that way. Uh, the Edom- Edomites weren't going to let them anyway. And so the Israelites had to skirt further east, which puts them into contact with the Amorites as they come up from the southwest to the north. And this is all so that they can get to what, as you noted earlier, is called the Transjordan, the other side of the Jordan River uh, before they cross it. Uh, at the end of Deuteronomy in the books of in the book of uh, Joshua. So as the Lord prepares his people to go against this first king, Sihon, he gives up well before he ever tells them what to do, he just says, "Hey, 
I'm going to give this into your hand. This is a pretty significant promise from the outset that God tells them how the battle's going to go before they ever even enter onto the battlefield. Yeah, it is. And this is something that God had done previously and would do again. Um, the extent to which the people trusted it, you know, would vary from time to time, uh, as we know. But here, uh, uh, by this account, the Israelites uh, trusted the Lord and, and probably um, uh, you, you kind of have a flip side of the coin that not only did the, the Lord make a promise to the Israelites, but also the Lord had established sort of this, this sense of dread and fear amongst the surrounding people. So you see the Lord very active in setting this up. And I think that this is helpful because we unpack sort of the whys and the wherefores of, of why would God um, uh, you know, allow for such destruction and obviously uh, war and battles. These aren't inherently good things by any stretch. Uh, but what you see here is the Lord active in the history of the Israelites, not necessarily always giving them a direct path from point A to point B, but putting peoples in their way or uh, almost, you know, in this case, seemingly arranging a battle for them to fight uh, again so that the people and particularly this new generation would learn to trust in him, learn to trust his might, his strength, his provision. Um, he could have, as God you know, can do anything, probably have found a path for them that didn't require a battle uh, or he could have arranged it in some other way. But in this way, uh, with these two battles, the people learn to trust him right as they're on the cusp of entering into uh, the promised land where they would they would really need to trust him, uh, as we find out later on. Yeah, that's right. So again, Moses, in his sermon, as he recounts these things, he's reminding the people about to enter the promised land, how the Lord is leading them to trust in him. We're going to keep looking at this text on the other side of the break. You're listening to... Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking about Deuteronomy 2 and 3 with Pastor Dan Speckard. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, August 5th. We're studying Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 24 through chapter 3, verse 11 with Pastor Dan Speckard. He serves at St. Peter Lutheran Church and School in North Judson, Indiana. Pastor Speckard, prior to the break, we were talking about the Lord's promise to his people that he will put the dread and fear of them into the peoples, particularly as they go out to meet first Sihon the Amorite king of Heshbon. And so Moses' first move in verse 26 is actually to send a messenger to Sihon with it 
an offer of peace, as Moses tells us. Uh, what, what's going on as Moses offers peace in verses 26 and following? Well, you know, it's kind of an interesting uh, uh, aspect of this story uh, that you do have the Amorites given the opportunity to avoid this battle. Uh, and, and you've seen this before where Moses, uh, as they encounter various peoples on their travels, uh, sends a messenger. I think, I think we see this with the, the Edomites and the Mo- or, um, uh, Ammonites previously, uh, where, you know, they, they seek safe passage. And you get the impression that this would have been a standard uh, sort of a standard diplomatic move as various peoples encountered one another. Uh, if you're going to travel through somebody's land, you you ask for permission to do so. Uh, but here Moses uh, is is making this offer with the full knowledge that, uh, first of all, uh, the Lord is behind him uh, on his side. And second of all, uh, that the Amorites are not likely to accept the offer of peace. Uh, and, and sure enough, what we have revealed here in Deuteronomy, what we we don't see it in, in, in numbers when this battle is, is described, uh, is that the Lord is going to uh, be active in the way that Sihon responds. So Moses offers peace, and the Amorites have an opportunity to avoid this, uh, but they do not take the opportunity. Uh, the heart of Sihon is hardened, uh, and, and so there's a fight to be had. And indeed, it is the Amorites who come out against the Israelites, which is what we would expect uh, as they are sort of you know, seeking to defend their land as they saw it. Is there maybe a similarity to way, the way the Lord acted toward the people of Egypt in the book of Exodus in the sense that, you know, over and over again, Moses goes to Pharaoh and tells him what's going to happen and the opportunity to repent is there. And it, it is an op- an offer that is made in earnest. I, and I think this is the same thing, that if, if Sihon will accept this offer for peace, the people will. It's an offer made in earnest, but he hardens his heart, so the Lord lets him have his way. I mean, there I see some parallels between what happened with the Exodus and what happens here with, with Sihon. Oh, very much so. And, you know, I think many of us who have studied these texts uh, recognize that there is, you know, from a, a theological perspective, that this is a challenging uh, component to the story, uh, and um, uh, probably more than we have time to unpack uh, today, but um, recognizing that you have to keep in mind God's will being done with respect to the entirety of salvation history, that for the Lord to provide a, a, a Messiah for all the world, uh, he's going to handle the uh, individual uh, sort of comings and goings of his chosen people, uh, the ancestors of Jesus, in a specific way. And we do not want to try to draw too many inferences from, you know, sometimes people will use passages like this to try to to get at the idea of free will or election or predestination. Um, you don't want to be too zoomed in on what God is doing with the heart of Sihon or Pharaoh or whomever. You want to zoom out and see that God in uh, facilitating this battle is strengthening the trust of his people in him, the people from whom the Messiah would come, the Messiah who would save the whole world, including the Amorites. And that's hard to see when you're just sort of dialed in on Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 30. Uh, But I think important to recognize uh, what the bigger picture of these things uh, entail, if that makes sense. It does. And I I think that's a very helpful perspective so that we don't 
get led astray by one verse into false doctrine, but to see that big picture, and in particular, the whole point of the Old Testament to tell us about how the Lord brought the Christ into the world to save all people, including these Amorites. So the the offer for peace is rejected, and now the Lord repeats the promise, and then the battle comes. Uh, take us into to verses 31 and 32 and following. Yeah, so the, the battle begins, and it's, it's uh, uh, as you might expect, when the Lord is fighting on one side, uh, it is a, a pretty clean-cut victory uh, for the people of God. They trust his promise to protect and provide for them, uh, and that's exactly what he does. And here again, we have another, if you just zoom in too tightly, you know, like verse 34 uh, in chapter 2 of Deuteronomy is, is challenging for us, uh, where you have uh, men, women, and children uh, devoted to destruction, and we left no survivors. Uh, we hear that, and it it doesn't sound to us in a vacuum uh, like a very uh, loving uh, way for God's people to have dealt with their enemies. And that's why, again, we just we have to make sure that we stay uh, zoomed out enough to remember what the Lord is accomplishing here uh, is for the sake of the salvation of the whole world, and a bigger plan is in place. Uh, we, we know that the Lord desires not the death of a sinner. Uh, we know what God is doing in the big picture. Uh, but it is, I mean, it is a, a decisive victory for the Israelites and the, uh, the, you have a description by Moses of the territory that was won, uh, and that puts them a little bit closer to where they need to go. Uh, but of course they're going to be confronted, uh, by another camp here a little bit further to the North uh, when they get to Og. The description of the battle that's given here, I mean, and you mentioned verse 34, but if you think about the battle itself, there's not some of those details that maybe you would expect to see like in a a military history. It's it's very clear-cut to the point that this was what the Lord our God did in verse 33. The Lord our God gave him over to us. And it's striking to me that in in the previous text, as they had been wandering through the wilderness, Moses had made the point in verses 13 through 15 of this chapter, or chapter 2, that all of the men of war have, have perished. Now, as, as you said, this is the new generation coming in, getting the chance to flex their muscles, to show their trust, exercise that trust that God has given. But it, it is striking to, to just notice how the men of war, that's who died in the wilderness. Now here is the new generation. And while, yes, there's fighting, I don't mean to downplay that. Just the way Moses tells the account, this is the Lord winning the victory for his people. It's not any human accomplishment on the part of the Israelites. It's the Lord being faithful to his promise yet again. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's so important for these young, uh, you know, young Israelites, the next generation, movement of war, uh, to learn that lesson. Uh, you know, we don't know a great deal about the strength of these particular Amorite uh, uh, kingdoms, but they probably had more experience uh, fighting battles than this generation of Israelites who had no experience. So for them to uh, enter into battle uh, with presumably a more experienced army and come out the victor uh, would have strengthened their trust in the God who was behind them and with them. And as you noted in verse 33, uh, Moses makes it very clear who uh, can claim the victory. It's not uh, the Israelites themselves, but it's the Lord our God uh, gave Sihon over to us and we defeated him and his sons. Um, it is what the Lord is doing uh, through uh, the Israelites and the Israelites learning to trust uh, what the Lord will continue to do through them and for them. 
So as this section wraps up, Moses, you know, again, we've recounted what's happened. And now there's a little more ge- geography, which relates to some of the things we read yesterday. The talks about the land of the sons of Ammon. What, where, where is that? What's being said there at the conclusion of chapter two? Yeah. So, Pastor Apple, do do correct me if I uh, if I'm going astray, but I, I think you have the uh, the the river Jabbok, which is a kind of a, a stream tributary to the Jordan River. That's about as we would look at the map about a third of the way up the Jordan River between the two great seas. And the uh, Ammonites are are in and amongst that valley of the Jabbok and off to the northeast a little bit further, uh, such that the Israelites are going to um, encounter them, but they're instructed to avoid them. And that puts them in continued uh, sort of uh, contact with this other Amorite king, Og uh, of, of uh, Bashan, um, do I have that about right, Pastor Apple? Is that what it looks like to you on the map? Yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. The the river Jabbok flows into the Jordan River, as you said, about a third of the way up from the from, or north from the Dead Sea to the Sea of Galilee. That's the general area, and that involves the Ammonites. and And in the text we looked at yesterday, and it, it gets repeated here, you don't mess with the Ammonites. You're related to them. The Lord gave them that land, so don't mess with them. But that does take us then farther north to Og of, of Bashan. So that's where we get into chapter three. Correct. Yep, that, that's exactly right. And as they, they head north, and as we'll, we'll hear after this this next battle and this next uh, victory, uh, it's actually quite a bit of land that the Israelites wind up uh, uh, conquering, uh, so to speak, that the Lord gives into their hand. Uh, that whole Transjordan territory uh, very unexpectedly becomes theirs. Uh, with just these two battles, you have um, uh, a, a pretty massive amounts of territory uh, that suddenly God's people can claim, uh, which is, uh, you know, just so, so huge for the psyche of this, this new generation. Uh, they really can trust God who has already begun to provide for them before they've even entered the promised land. Mm. So as, as the text then turns into chapter three and we, we meet Og of Bashan, where, where do we find ourselves there? How much farther north are we talking? Well, I think I think uh, quite a bit north, as as you would um, look at the land that is described after the battle, uh, the um, sort of the northern border of it is described or is marked by Mount Hermon, um, and then the Valley of Arden in the south. Uh, Mount Hermon is way up what I, I believe we would now call the Golan Heights. Uh, so you're talking about even north of the of the Sea of Chinneroth or, or as we would call it now, the Sea of Galilee. Um, so quite a bit of, of land north-south, um, not so much east-west, but this Transjordan territory is what's at stake uh, in this battle. Right. So, okay. So this is, a, as you said, a pretty significant amount of territory that the Lord's going to give to his people. And again, this is before they officially enter into the promised land. As the Lord prepares his people for battle, there's there's promises made again. What do we, what do we see as the Lord talks to Moses and tells his people about the coming battle. Yeah, again, that same promise, do not fear him, for I have given him uh, and all his people and his land into your hand. So even before the battle is fought, uh, the promise of victory is there, and you have the um, uh, less of a description here uh, as to how God might have been active in the heart of Og, as we did with Sihon, but the same promise for the Israelites, uh, that, you know, the Lord is behind them, they have nothing to fear, you will do to him as to Sihon, uh, and they would have gone into this fight uh, trusting based on 
the victory that had just been won, uh, that the Lord would see them through, and indeed he does. So, and what I what I really appreciate about this is we were reading it earlier is that I don't know you know when we when you look at a map which again is very helpful what you have on a map a lot of times is kind of a, a, a colored line that you know maybe it's red or blue or whatever color the map chooses that shows you a general route that people took and sometimes you don't like well that's a nice line but I mean 60 cities is what we're talking about and then villages that didn't have walls as well I mean this is a pretty significant millet if you want to think about it in that respect this is a pretty still significant military campaign that the Lord is organizing here for his people. Yeah, absolutely. And and the way it's described, uh, as you noted, sort of uh, bears that out, the way he describes these, these 60 cities that are fortified with high walls and gates and bars. Uh, this would not have been a minor conquest. And of course, the, you know, as would have been natural, that it all kind of happened in one battle. And then you presume that the cities that were under the banner of the one army suddenly just uh, become... Uh, uh, you know, the the property of the other army. Uh, so it's not as though they had to fight uh, 60 times or anything like that, but it is a significant kingdom uh, that suddenly God has given over to his people. And again, this is just all from a historical perspective. This is all just preamble. Uh, you know, the Lord hadn't promised to his people the Transjordan. Uh, the, the Lord had promised uh, the, the, the land of Canaan, the Holy Land on the other side, on the western edge of the Jordan River, uh, between there and the Mediterranean Sea. So all of this um, really ought to underscore for us the big things that the Lord was doing uh, through his people Israel. And this is just like the foretaste uh, of the conquest and the victories that are to come. Well, I'm, I'm glad you used the word foretaste because that's that was where I was going to go next as, as you're talking. I mean, it sounds like this is the this is the down payment of what is to come. And, and thinking about this event as a whole— and the way that that Moses preaches it here, I mean, uh, part of I think part of what he's doing is that he's he's telling the people, look how the Lord has been faithful in giving you this land, which is on the other side, and we're going to find out already how it's even being settled. That's going to come up later, but I mean, look at how he's been faithful here. So how much more than can you trust him to give you the? If this is the down payment, he's going to make good on the on the whole thing. That's exactly right. I love that language of down payments. It really is, uh, in the context of Moses' sermon, um, that's precisely the point. Uh, the goal was never to conquer the Transjordan, but it is evidence of God making good on his promises, being present with his people, uh, protecting and providing for them, uh, even in the midst of um, uh, battle and, and opposition, uh, God will see them through. And you know, just it's really that's what the book of Deuteronomy is. It's setting the stage for this transition in Israelite history. You have the Exodus and all of the events of the wilderness, and now this new generation is going to settle the promised land uh, that had been um, promised by God to their forefathers, uh, and and we're we're going to enter into that new era uh, with this reminder that God is faithful. Uh, when God promises, God does it. And his people, if they simply would trust in him, have nothing to fear. The, you know, the, in verse 2, do not fear him. What God said of Og, uh, God would um, uh, say of a great many other uh, peoples and kings and uh, potential enemies of the Israelites. Uh, what's amazing to think is that the Israelites who had uh, a generation ago been delivered from a much mightier people in the Egyptians. I mean, the, the, the Edomites and the, the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Ammonites, 
they're not even in the same arena as the Egyptians when it comes to yeah. um, sort of the, the, the military power. God had delivered the Israelites from the Egyptians. God is giving them walkover victories against some of these smaller kingdoms. Uh, God has proved himself uh, clearly uh, in the sight of the people. And yet we know uh, before very long, the people are going to uh, doubt. They've already doubted. They're going to doubt again. And that's that's kind of the frustration of the Old Testament. The people uh, simply do not trust. That's right. Yeah, I mean, it, that is the frustration. In, in a previous episode, we were at the end of chapter one, when we were talking about that moment where they rebel against the Lord and, and refuse to go in the promised land the first time, we called it it's senseless, uh, frustrating to, to watch this happen over and over again, where the Lord gives to his people you know, the evidence that he is faithful, that when he makes a promise, as he does twice in this text, that the battle's done. When he says, don't be afraid because I'm giving him into your hand, the battle's over at that point, And you just go onto the battlefield to receive the victory that the Lord has already won for you. And then, and, and I, you know, I, I hate to do this because the book of Deuteronomy in this sense is very hopeful because at, at least at this point, because here's this new generation and, and Moses is preaching to them so that they, they won't fall into the, the fo- footsteps of their fathers and their unfaithfulness. And yet we know it happens, uh, but yeah, that frustration, that senselessness, it, it's easy for us, I suppose, to, to read it from a distance, but then we can also see how we follow in those same footsteps as well, where, where we have the clear evidence that the Lord is faithful, but we don't trust in the promises all the time either. That is exactly right. And in that sense, you know, there is kind of a, uh, kind of an inverted hope to be taken from, from Deuteronomy that, you know, as we reflect upon our own infidelity, uh, as we recognize in ourselves, the same senseless, almost comical, uh, tendency to forget or reject the uh, unfailing faithfulness of God, uh, we, we know at least we're not alone. And what we see in Deuteronomy and what we hear in the words of Moses and what we see uh, throughout Israelite history is that in spite of our senseless infidelity, God remains faithful. Uh, and that, of course, is a source of great hope. And, you, you know, you don't want to, uh, there's a risk in taking these historical accounts and trying to, um, you know, allegorize them too much or or something like that. But you do see here a very similar dynamic to the nature of our own salvation, that when it comes to our battles with sin, death, and the devil, uh, you know, we we have very little to bring to the table. In fact, nothing at all. Uh, And yet the Lord promises uh, that the victory has already been won by his son, and our job is just to trust it and receive the spoils. And that's exactly what God offers his people um, if, if they would only trust, uh, if they would only receive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We don't want to allegorize. That's, that's a, a helpful a helpful corrective. At the same time, keeping in mind what St. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians about, you know, these things happened as an example and they were written down for our instruction. So yeah. be careful so that the same temptation doesn't overcome you. Uh, so, Indeed. yeah. So, I mean, yeah, careful for allegorizing, but also make sure that we do see the instruction that is there for us. Because as Paul says, there's no temptation that's overtaking you. That's not common to man. We are going to face the same temptations in different ways. Now, before we get we get too far, I want to reflect a little bit more. But I do want to come back to the Og's bed in in verse eleven. What tell us a little bit about Og's bed? Yeah, and well, and this is uh, maybe a point of some. Uh, I don't know if it's a, a dispute or, or maybe it's settled, and I just haven't read the right things. But uh, it sounds like 
there are some who think that the, the bed is just a bed, uh, just literally the bed where he slept, and then others who think that this would have been referring to uh, a sarcophagus or like his burial bed, uh, which would make certainly has the ring of truth to me is why else would uh, the Ammonites have kept it? Um, either way, it is a remarkably large place for him to lie, whether it was lie down at night or lie down in death. Uh, he, he was a large man. And that of course gets us into the, uh, the conversation about the Rephaim and, and uh, that has its own complexities. Uh, but Og is, um, uh, you know, you, you can see why Moses would have reminded his people. Uh, Og is bigger than Moses uh, and bigger, we presume, than any of the Israelites. Uh, this was not a case of, you know, the Israelites were just bigger and stronger. Uh, this was a case of God is bigger and stronger than even the mightiest foe. Uh, and, uh, you know, kind of a uh, Moses throws this in, we presume, to further underscore uh, the extent to which his people can trust the Lord. Mm. I did a little bit of reading on this bed and, and found that uh, the same thing that, that you did in terms, I don't know if it's a dispute, but there is some question as to exactly how that word is being used here. Apparently this word for bed is not the general word for like the bed that you and I would lie down on. It's a, a word that's used. It's a bed that's often sometimes very extravagant in some contexts. It, it can mean even like a sick bed. It's used in that sense in the Psalms. It's used for very extravagant beds of, of the rich and the famous who are condemned in the book of Amos. And so here, you know, is it, is it like a, a really luxurious bed like that? Is it a, perhaps, as you said, a scar- sarcophagus could be, could be either one. I think the, the point is that it's, it's size and nine cubits by four cubits. Uh, according to first Samuel, Goliath was six cubits and a span, which I think is usually, a, I think about nine feet. This, mm-hmm. this bed being nine cubits, that's like 13 feet. So this, this guy is potentially taller than Goliath. I think the yeah. size is, is the point that we're supposed to get. And as you said, it wasn't the ingenuity of the Israelites or their own strength, but it's the Lord who gave the victory even over this guy. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you would seeing his bed, whatever it was, uh, it, it would certainly inspire a confidence in, in terms of, boy, look look to see who the Lord defeated. Uh, I'm going to stay in his corner, at least in theory. Uh, you, right. you hope that they would. Right, that's right. So here is here is the bed that's the evidence of the Lord's great victory over over the enemies of his people. So we have about five minutes here to, to reflect. You know, I mean, as we, we gave some reflection already on the importance of looking at texts like these and, and keeping them in our minds, even when there's there's difficulties. As we consider this section of, of Deuteronomy, the defeat of these two kings, what's the profitable use for us as Christians on, on this from this account? Yeah, you know, I think what comes to mind for me, because we've already unpacked a little bit, you know, the the um, feasibility of studying texts like this that are, are difficult and, and uh, that it's not as uh, uh, imposing as it might initially appear if you, if you know where to look and, and you can break out the maps and you take the time. Um, and, and if you do, we do, even in the verses we've covered, see so much of the character of God. And we've talked already about uh, his fidelity uh, and, and his... Um, uh, his hand being so present in bringing about the salvation of the world through his people. Uh, but what came to mind for me this week as I was studying this text, maybe more than that even, uh, was this, uh, just this uh, dynamic with the new generation coming up. Uh, I think like, uh, uh, you know, for for me, I, I've been praying for 
uh, our youth who, when, as we're recording this, they're in uh, they're in Houston uh, at the youth gathering or coming home from it. And you, you see these thousands of young Christians uh, and you wonder, you know, what will the next generation of God's church look like in this place? And then also not just in this place. Uh, we had earlier this summer our district convention here in Indiana, uh, and we received a couple of reports about the growth of the church in the southern hemisphere, particularly in Africa. And you think about, you know, these these fledgling church bodies that are only just getting their seminaries built and, and are only just sort of um, uh, getting underway as a full-blown communion of Christians, um, what what will they encounter? What trials will they endure? To what extent will they trust in the Lord? And I think it's for those considerations, whether it's the young Christians in our midst or the uh, uh, fledgling churches in other parts of the world. Uh, to me, it's so encouraging to think that whatever their character and whatever they encounter, the Lord God is faithful. Uh, and the Lord has taken new generations time and time again and led them to the promised land. Uh, indeed, for Christians, the new Jerusalem pointed us right to the, the victory we have through his son. Uh, and whatever else happens, we can be certain that the Lord will come to the table. Uh, the Lord will provide what is necessary. Uh, and the Lord's will is going to be done uh, with respect to the salvation through his son. Um Everything else is, you know, the mystery of the future, but at least we have the foundation uh, of knowing that God will be there as he has promised to be there. That's that's what is uh, going through this text for me. Yeah, yeah, the faithfulness of God that then given to the next generation. And yeah, I mean, you know, you and I are probably at a, at a point in, in our time as pastors where we we do start to to think back a little bit on on those that have we've encountered and and think about those you know that those infants that we've baptized who are going up into confirmation and we start to to think about that and the way in which we can pass down the faith to them in which they can can see you know not only the the history of the the church that's described in scripture but the history of churches as we've known it that they might learn from from the sins that we've committed might see the faithfulness of God through it all I think we see that certainly in this section of, of Deuteronomy, and, and we'll continue to see it as Moses continues to preach here in Deuteronomy. Pastor Dan Speckard is pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church and School in North Judson, Indiana, helping us today with Deuteronomy 2, verse 24 through chapter 3, verse 11. Pastor Speckard, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you for having me, Pastor Apple. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. God is faithful. When he makes a promise, it is done, something that we can trust. The down payment that he has given, he will make good as we wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is coming soon. Thanks for spending the morning with us. If you have any questions about Deuteronomy, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. Always a pleasure to hear from you. Talk to you again next week.